Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's end it off to your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This April 2020 episode is coming to you at a pretty crazy moment in world history. We are in the middle of a global pandemic that has already taken the lives of thousands of people and shifted economic and cultural paradigms in ways we could not have imagined just weeks ago. For those of us in the education community, distance learning is now the new normal and the big challenge. Parents, students, teachers, and school leaders are working together to figure out how young people might continue to learn when they are sheltered in place or quarantined. Today we are with Dr. Robin Vieira, the Director of Global Education at Punahou School's Woe International Center. Dr. Vieira has instructed graduate students in action research, teaching as leadership and instructional pedagogy at the John Hopkins University School of Education. In 2019, she directed Dr. Yong Zhao's Student Global Entrepreneurship Camp for over 200 students. She was a grade four teacher at Punahou School for four years and has served as an instructional coach for Teach for America. Dr. Vieira is a doctor of education in organizational leadership, policy and development, and she holds a master's as well. A Punahou parent told me Dr. Vieira is, and I quote, truly the best teacher my kids ever had. She is innovative, thoughtful, and brilliant. She allows kids to run with their passions and is an inspiration. Dr. Vieira, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for that introduction as well. Okay, so Robin, uh, may I call you Robin? Is that okay? Yes, yes, of course. That's awesome. Okay. So, Robin, we have this format that we call 10 questions, and so we're going to roll through 10 questions for you. We're going to take a break at the halfway point, and uh, that's the format for this show. So we're going to launch directly into question number one. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a way for our radio audience to get to know you and your philosophy of education, take us through a day in the life of your fourth grade classrooms. What were, what were the sights and sounds of those four years with your kiddos? Yeah, I have to tell you that fourth grade is truly the best grade I've ever taught, and I, I miss it all the time. Um, I loved the mornings, connecting with kids around morning meeting and sharing what they did on the weekends and what excited them. Um, we always had a board in the room about sort of questions and inquiries that kids wanted to be pursuing, and I loved adding to that. 
um, I'm a strong believer in teachers, college leaders, and writers, and and kind of gaining those foundational skills in reading and writing and practicing what real writers and real real readers do um, in their reading and writing lives. Um, And then we'd also have a lot of um, integrated transdisciplinary time. Um, One project that I thought was really fun was just really when sort of 3D printing was coming out in schools. We, um, and it was was one of those years that you're like, wow, this class really needs um, a lot of sort of movement and differentiation. And so we talked about, and we'd, we'd destroy, we had all these fidget toys in our room. Like I bought them online at Amazon and we'd destroyed them all. Like they, they all broke. Um, and so we came up with this, this question, like how, how might we design a fidget toy that could meet the needs of our, our user? And so it was pretty fun. We, um, they interviewed different kids in the grade level about like what they like when they're, they are fidgeting, like what kind of things might relax them. They, they prototyped it, they designed it on Tinkercad, um, 3D printed it, and then gave it, gave it back to the user um, and got some feedback, and, and it was sort of a gift to them. So those were the types of projects that were just really fun to explore, and it's one of those things you only do once. It's not like you put it in a binder for, for the next year. We never did it again, but it's something that emerged um, sort of out of the, the kids and out of the needs of the classroom. Hmm. Describe your use of space. Like, what what was the what are the spaces like in your or what were the spaces like in your classrooms? Yeah, so that was um, before we had all this amazing move, movable classroom, um, movable furniture in the classrooms. So students were in groups. Um, they always had sort of like these group challenges and names and stuff, and so they sat in groups. And then we had different spaces within the classroom where like the library where they could go and hang out, um, carpet area. I mean, for the most part, it's, I encourage kids to work wherever they feel comfortable. Mm. Um, and then I move between the class, the students and workspaces. Mm. And I know that Punahou, and by the way, I'm a, I'm a graduate, a 1976 yes. graduate of Punahou, so that's another reason why it's super special to be doing this interview with you today. Um, so I know that Punahou's really been on the forefront of some of the thinking that's going on around play. And mm-hmm. how, how did how was that how did that play out in your classrooms? Yeah, I mean we know that kids learn best through play, um, through engaging with one another in active learning. And so we did a lot like for math, playing a lot of math games for social emotional learning, playing a lot of games like improv and acting things out. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I I I think play and experimentation go hand in hand. And so when you're doing science, maybe how might you design a boat that can go from here to there and carry a hundred pennies. And, and that, that's a playful exercise, right? Mm-hmm. And if you take a lot of the sort of the stress out of it and the, um, like it has to succeed on the first time and make it very iterative and fun. And, and, and I think it's just something that teacher sometimes brings to the classroom is that, that joy and that playfulness and that, that oops mindset um, that really a lot of different sort of academic 
topics can feel very playful um, as long as you you bring that culture to the classroom. So it sounds like your your classrooms, your your time with your kids when you were teaching fourth grade had a lot of what we might call design thinking elements built into it. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the tenets of design thinking, one of the basic prompts is how might we? And you've said that a couple of times already. It sounds like your classrooms were kind of built around the idea of how might we? Absolutely. Um, and I think that was just around the time that I, I, I think I was just learning about design thinking. Um, and it just felt like it fits so neatly into my philosophy and approach to teaching. And it was helpful to get that language and that structure that supported um, what I think a lot of us believe in education. And it was just something we could layer on to help kid, uh, kids understand it. Yeah, I remember I was teaching history at La Pietra, Hawaii School for Girls, the first time that I went to a design thinking boot camp. And um, there were two things. One was the how might we, how might we, and the other was just this concept of the designer's mindset really kind of blew the top of my head off. And I remember going back to school the next Monday, and it was as if the whole paradigm had shifted. And even teaching history, I was trying to think about ways to bring that designer's mindset and that question, how might we, into teaching history. It was a very, it was a very transformative moment for me. And, and, and you know, really changed the arc of my teaching. Um, so perfect. So Robin, uh, segue to question number two. Um, I want to talk about the, um, quote, aims of a Punahou education. One of the bulleted aims um, states, to develop within each Punahou student the capacity for critical and creative thought, the skills for effective written and oral communication, interpersonal collaboration, quantitative reasoning, scientific inquiry, and a global perspective. So my question is, what is your work at the Woe International Center, and how does your global education program ultimately yield young people who have a global perspective? Yeah, great question. And I, I mean, I love the aims of the Punahou education because I think they encompass really everything that we're moving towards um, as educators and what we want for our students to be able to thrive um, in the 21st century and beyond. Um, so... I'll be honest, like a lot of people wonder what exactly is global education beyond traveling across borders, which is an amazing experience that um, many of our students get to do. Um, but it's it's not an opportunity for everybody at every every school. And so I love thinking about how we can support that um, from our littlest students to our oldest students um, in an integrated way into our classroom as a way also that integrates all the other skills that you talked about, about critical and creative thought, because they're all part of global education. Mm. You know, global education is about preparing students for an interconnected world. It's helping them understand um, the world around them, uh, having the skills to interact with others and difference and different ideas, um, and then being able to take action, right? To have that action-oriented mindset and disposition and, and really the skills to be able to do something um, to create a better world. And, and that requires a huge range of skills. And so it's really fun to think about global education in that way and how I can support it in the classroom. 
Um, so I guess I'll just give you, let me think about a couple examples of yeah, that. Yeah, that'd be great. So we just, yeah, so we just finished um, our fifth graders. It's a big year on learning about um, Hawaii, Ike Hawaii, and sustainability challenges here in Hawaii. And so something that we launched this year is called the Global Coding Project. And so students, they've gone to the Big Island. They researched about um, native birds and the threats to native birds. And so I, I kind of saw that that's what they're doing, and I was thinking about how how can we bring that, that learning to an audience, and particularly a global audience, and create a platform for sharing for kids around the world. So um, this is, I guess we just finished our third year in the Global Coding Project, and this year we had 700 students from 13 different countries. Wow. And yeah, it was really exciting. And so it was basically UN Sustainable Development Goals, and so students in these, wherever they were located around the world, um, designed a scratch-coded project that taught about a global issue um, locally. And so this idea of connecting the local to the global um, and realizing that we need to understand our place and be able to think about that and how it relates to sort of this global interconnection. Um, so students um, coded these really amazing stories that taught about issues here in Hawaii on Scratch. And then they shared them on a platform, and then they viewed each other's projects and gave feedback, a great lesson there in digital citizenship and what it means to um, give constructive feedback in a way that feels supportive and kind of supporting that, that communication aspect of global education. And then um, they gave feedback and then reflected on what they learned from their peers globally. Um, and as a teacher, I mean, it was, so, it was so fun. I mean, to be on WhatsApp communicating with teachers in Morocco and Jordan and Wales and um, where else, Japan, Ghana, like that. And, and then to see the kids communicating with their peers from those countries, that just, it's really, really exciting. Wow, that just gives me chicken skin. I was just thinking, you know, while you were talking about, you know, using WhatsApp to communicate, um, Robin, this podcast is edited by these um, epic middle schoolers over in Kona at Kealakehe Intermediate. And we decided uh, back at the beginning of season one that we were going to use Slack as our way of communicating. Um, and it's just been fabulous using this technology platform to connect with the kids as they, you know, ask me to review drafts and so on and so forth. And I, I love that idea that you've got that kind of communication pattern um, built into what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think it just builds a lot of authenticity into mm, yeah. these technologies that we're, we're, we're learning about um, and all these reading and writing skills that we're learning. And it just makes it and puts it in an authentic context. Yeah. So I know this might seem like an obvious question, but in what ways has COVID-19 uh, the global pandemic changed your thinking about what it means to have a global perspective? Yeah, I, I think it's really exemplified it. Um, this is an example of the fact that we're all interconnected and the, the choices that um, one place makes is going to affect everybody. And it's something we've always known, but it's really there in our face right now. And and I also see the huge need. I mean, we're having these conversations right now about um, creating a vaccine, and it's almost this arms race for a vaccine. Um, 
and and we see that if 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 we cooperate and we work together, everybody who needs it the most globally is is we if we cooperate, we can create a plan for that or we can compete and just protect our populations and um, kind of this nationalistic mentality. And so I think I think it just supports this real need to cooperate, collaborate, um, and what that looks like across borders, across difference, across commonalities. Um, and it just makes me realize the huge, the huge need for this education. Mm. It makes me think that once we get to the other side of COVID-19, um, there's a possibility that that collaboration and cooperation might be a little bit more the rule of the day rather than competition. I, I hope we learn that lesson um, as as we come out on the other side. I hope so too. So, okay, Robin, question number three. I'm super interested in two parts of your global education program. So I want to talk about them in order. So number one is one of the one is the the junior or senior year or semester immersive study abroad. Um, what mm. are the what are the ultimate aims of having a student spend a year in another country and and what skills and habits and dispositions do you aim students to have as a result of being abroad? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more incredible than having a truly immersive experience in a different place that makes you feel a bit discomfort, uncomfortable. Um, it makes you feel a little bit outside of your element. And that, that challenges you to kind of see different perspectives um, and empathize in a way that you may not have before. Um, and so for me, studying abroad is just the ultimate way that one can really have a new perspective. I know when I, um, I studied abroad in Brazil um, and I lived with a host family there. Um, they didn't speak much English. I had to learn Portuguese very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, you know, I was a environmental studies major at Claremont McKenna and I had always thought like, right, you don't cut down trees. It's a bad idea. And I had a very singular perspective on what environmentalism looked like. And then I remember one day we were um, with some, they're called Kobokos, and they were, they lived along the Amazon River, these sort of tributaries, and they were cutting down these, these really important trees. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, stop it. But then also it dawned on me that like, this is subsistence living, right? And and, right. It, and and saving the environment is so much more complicated than just telling people not to do something. It's about raising people up. It's about addressing poverty and then equity. And I remember just realizing that and, and crying because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so much more complicated than mm-hmm. I thought. And it's, it's a much larger system. And I guess that just sort of illustrates the value of studying abroad, that you, you recognize the larger system at hand and the different perspectives that exist um, beyond, beyond the world that you usually live in. Mm. I remember the day that my daughter, who's she's now 28, um, her name is Emma, and she lives in California, and she's a kindergarten teacher, which is super awesome. Um, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, so... Um, I remember when she was at University of California, Santa Barbara, 
she called me and wanted to asking to do the semester at sea program for her final semester in college and it's not cheap and so i had to take a deep breath on that one but in the end um, she traveled all the way from the baltic down to you know the tip of south africa and then all the way across to patagonia and then back up and ended up in cuba and it was an absolutely life-changing experience for her um, and all of the ways that both on the ship and off the ship um, she gained a global perspective it was quite spectacular to follow along with her using whatsapp by the way um, that was the way that we communicated so yeah that sounds that sounds very cool absolutely and i mean i'd also like to put a plug in there quickly you know it, it can as you said it, it can be expensive um but there's also this tremendous opportunity in hosting someone who mm. is coming from another country I grew up hosting a Russian exchange student for a year when I was in fifth grade, and then a German exchange student for a year when we were when I was in third grade. Um, and there's there's so much value there. It's it's a free way to do it and gain a global perspective. But that that shaped me. I mean, I probably wouldn't be in the center if I my parents hadn't been open to that. And just gaining a new sister from a from a different country. Um, mm was an incredible experience for me. Yeah, my family. And who I still keep in touch with today, right? And they have kids, and our kids play, and that, that's amazing. Yeah, that is. My family hosted a young man who was um, actually directing a refugee program in Saigon during the Vietnam War, um, and he would come and stay with us for a couple of months when the war would mm -hmm. you know, be hot. And I, I remember those conversations like they were yesterday. It was very eye-opening um, for us as a family to hear from him. So, mm -hmm. so Robin, the, the other um, program that I want to ask you about is your Student Global Leadership Institute, um, which is a two-week summit with international partner schools, uh, followed by senior year projects and online collaboration. So what are the aims of this program? And maybe you could describe one or two of the senior projects. Yeah, so, I mean, I, for, actually for both of these, these topics, just um, the study abroad as well as the Student Global Leadership Institute. I actually have to give complete credit to Dr. Shai Reddy, who is also in the Lowell International Center. And these are projects that are that he really spearheads um, and has has built at Punahou School. So I'm only speaking to it really from a sort of secondary perspective. Mm -hmm. I work mostly with our K-12 um, curriculum and teachers in professional development. Um, but it's a really it's I, I get to sort of experience it as a fly on the wall in many ways. And I, I directed the teacher program one year. Um, but the kids come together from different countries and they work on a project together around different themes from health to um, water. And they come up with projects that they want to implement back at home. Um, and I mean, that's a great output of the program, but really one of the tremendous takeaways I think that kids get is that they, um, they've they learned to co collaborate with these really diverse teams. And it's not just in the classroom. It's what they're doing in the dorms that they're all staying in, and they're, they're hanging out, they're having meals together, and just that social interaction and that, that time together is invaluable. And they, they keep in touch um, beyond the program. I've, I've worked with the teacher side of that, and 
on the teacher side of that, the teachers who have come as chaperones for students, they come together as well as educators and collaborate around shared ideas. And so thinking about how they might globalize their classroom and connect their students when they're back at home and creating curriculum around that. And that's that's really powerful, right? It's it's about creating those personal connections that help us realize our shared humanity um, and that the, the desire to um, think more globally. What are some of the ways that um, the program seeks input from the kids about what they want to work on, which is really the heart of the whole thing? It's about student agency and working on things that you're interested in. Yeah, so are you, okay, so specifically to SGLI or just global education and our like our um, global sustainability by design program as well. So I think I think the the Global Leadership Institute is of particular interest um, that I'm trying to imagine what that would be like to find out like what are we going to work on? What do you want to work on individually? What are we going to work on together? How do we find that consensus and figure out what's important to us? Yeah, so I, again, I haven't been um, a huge part of that. That's led by a really great team of teachers that shy directs. Um, so I'm, I'm not totally sure. I know that they have a group of student mentors who've participated in the program before who also then come back. From, they're from different countries, and they come back, and they mentor and are sort of TAs for the program um, and help them develop develop their project but all the projects um the sort of the theme is given to them but there's a lot of student agency within that about how they can see that theme playing out in their context so Mm -hmm. let's say it's mental health maybe our group of students from sweden are thinking about um how maybe drug use they see maybe that as an issue and they think about how they can have a project to support that and then maybe our students here at punahou are thinking about social media and so it's really that idea of applying a theme to their own personal context and having a sense of agency um, to think about what that might look like to be mm. to to provide some action um, in their student population. Okay, so so actually, question number four is a, is a, exactly along the same lines. Um, so, Robin, I confess that this COVID nineteen moment has me pretty anxious. Um, I'm worried about all the personal and fin- financial elements of this pandemic, of course, um, and my and for my family and my loved ones and everybody that I know. But almost more than that, I'm really really worried that the greater educational community may squander this moment and revert to a, quote, keep it simple and traditional sort of worksheet approach to learning. And I feel like this is an epic carpe diem moment to challenge our kids from the fourth grade through college to solve the world's large, big, hairy, complex, super interesting problems under the guidance, of course, course of, of, you know, coaches, their teachers, their mentors, um, so what do you think about this? And, and please feel free to push back and tell me to chill out. But if, if you share my concern, what, what do we do to 
hmm, seize this moment and have kids working on these challenges? Yeah, I mean, this is so disruptive and um, the optimist in me is thinking, all right, with disruption um, comes innovation, right? And so I know our teachers are working so hard as they push um, the learning online and they're, they're doing some really, really awesome things. I mean, I'll, I'll shout out to my husband and his partner, Kayla Clapp, not partner, but um, teaching partner, yeah. uh, Kayla Clapp. They're, they're in our Global Sustainability by Design program, and they're having uh, students think about um, their, their Goal 16 project and how cultural identity shapes um, your perspective. And so, they're, I mean, the teachers are checking in with them each week and um, in individual phone calls throughout the week. But really, this is an opportunity to um, support project-based learning. Um, just doing a lot of worksheets and task-oriented learning is going to be exhausting for kids, right, especially in this online environment. Yeah, sure. And so having a, a project that um, builds over the rest of the semester, and hopefully that's the end of our <laughs> distance learning, but we'll see, um, I think is essential to, to supporting student investment um, and still giving that sense that sense of meaning when you're so isolated that you still feel like you're, you're doing something that is, is meaningful, right? Mm. Um, so I think, I think it's really going to have us reflect on our pedagogy. It's going to have have us reflect on what um, motivates students and what can connect students as well. Mm. I'm just thinking about how if you cut kids loose or if you if you you know give them a, a little bit of distance from what they might have been doing in the classroom, um, they're going to latch on to all kinds of challenges that they may have been thinking about but we didn't know about. We didn't know that they were thinking about them. I was talking to a teacher yesterday uh, on Molokai who her students have just sort of activated around this idea of, of food. Um, how do we get food to people when they're in shelter in place? And they, without even you know checking with anybody, they started working on the project together. Um, and I'm excited about that kind of innovation that happens um, you know, inside the home. And I'm just wondering what it's going to take for a, you know, a greater amount of that to happen across the world. Is this the moment where we could actually solve a whole bunch of problems that have been sitting on the table for a long time and all of a sudden COVID-19 has put us in this position? Right, absolutely. And I think, um, and I, think I mean, I, I agree. And I guess my small pushback would be the 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 focus on equity as well. And because some, some mm -hmm. students are just going to thrive in this environment and they have the support at home to be able to do it, um, then, then this is their jam, right? And there's just so many different types of learners that my hope is that we can create sort of a, we, you know, there's going to be those kids that just take it and go, and then we can put in place some of those scaffolds to allow kids to take those baby steps before, as they go into um, this really solutions-oriented uh, learning. But I think there's a ton of problems out there that all of our students can latch onto and begin thinking about how, how might they help and how might they be part of this, this global movement. Yeah, which is back to that prompt in design thinking, how might we 
Yeah, how might we right. solve this toilet paper problem that we've got? Uh, you right. know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, I have a friend uh, who lives in Iowa, and he he uh, emailed me a couple of days ago, and his sister lives down the road, and her child, she's a single mother, her child is in middle school, um, actually went into the garage and sort of disappeared for a couple of days, and they heard a lot of hammering and, and engineering going on, and he emerged with a special machine that actually cuts two-ply toilet paper into one ply. It's just a blade that you run the toilet paper roll over and separates it, and all of a sudden you go from one roll to two rolls. And I thought, Shazam, you know, there you go. Kid didn't even tell anybody. He's just like, I just got to pull together the tools that are in the garage, and I can make this happen. Um, Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And my hope is that we can make that part of the academic work as well, right? It's not just this sort of passion project on the side. But right. I mean, that is learning, right? And my hope is that we can embrace that as schools as well. And I, I think we are. Yeah. Okay. So question number five. Um, back in January, Robin, I attended the 2020 East Meets West conference, which is put on by Blue Startups here in Hawaii. And it, it gathers hundreds of entrepreneurial startup and venture folks from all over the Pacific Rim. And at a panel on the future of work, a number of panelists talked about things like, quote, distributed models of work, which means folks working on a project from locations all over the world. They also talked about, quote, commando team building and, quote, virtual reality workspace teams. And I was like, you know, yikes, that was only weeks ago and the COVID-19 crisis really was confined to China at that point um, back in January. So uh, in the moment, I became kind of concerned because um, I started thinking about what do we need to do in our public, private, and charter schools, K through 12, to get kids ready to participate in these type of workspaces? Everything's going online, right? But I mean, the, the great thing is our students are digital natives, right? They This actually feels more uncomfortable to us than it does to them. Um, and so I think I think they're actually pretty ready, um, but it's I mean how can we, so the question is how can we help prepare students for this sort of interconnected digital learning? Yeah, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I think in recognizing that there's still personal connection in in being online, and I think they realize that. I think. Also, preparing them to be excellent digital citizens is a huge, huge part of this. Um, but I'll be honest, I don't actually think it's that vastly different than what we do as teachers anyway, whether it be in the classroom or online. We're just using different tools, and feeling familiar with those tools um, is important. But but what it means to be ready for for the world hasn't changed, right? Just the medium has. Hmm. I think I think my worry is that um, for kids who are following a singular track, or were before COVID nineteen, we're following a singular track, which is you know you're moving through your courses, you're being evaluated, test paper, project mm -hmm. variations thereof. Um, it was already a concern that these kids might be less employable at the far end because they hadn't done any work in teams or hadn't collaborated on projects. And so, you know, in this COVID-19 moment, all of a sudden 
everybody is is working at a distance but i'm not sure that they're working on projects which is back to that previous question mm-hmm. right about about challenges and about projects the the way to find out whether you can work in a team even a virtual reality workspace um, on a particular team is that you have to actually be in a team and you have to be working on something, a project of some kind, a challenge of some kind. Um, so I, I, I guess that's what I'm asking is, right. is, is this a moment that's going to make that it's going to accelerate more teamwork and collaborative work? Or is this a moment that's going to do the opposite? Yeah. It's like, okay. I, I see what you're saying here. I mean, I'd argue that the need has always been there, that the need hasn't changed, um, but maybe this supports the motivation maybe behind it. Um, that would, that would be great because you're right. I mean, team-based learning, nothing in this new economy happens in isolation, right? In the innovation economy, um, it requires collaboration. And I think, I think we're seeing the the rationale for how important it is. I think before this and and after this, um, but it, it is going to push us to um, do things in a different way. And I think maybe just just that push to do things in a different way is going to spark innovation um, and it sparks collaboration. I mean, it's so amazing to see our teacher collaborative space buzzing right because mm. because we need to right wow, awesome. um and instead of sort of kind of putting your head down and, and doing the work that you need to get done in your classroom we're now leaning on one another in a way um that's really really pretty beautiful and so my guess is that that i guess more less i mean yes the kids but also the teachers and the way we're supporting each other in our learning is really going to spark the the sort of next innovation in, in education. Mm, I can imagine, um, you know, as I think across the world that parents and students and educators are all reaching out to each other as resources as we try to navigate this moment, as you described, and that in and of itself is almost like a giant bit of teamwork. Absolutely. I'm, I'm on all of these sort of teacher global forums and just seeing the conversations of people from different places lending support, lending ideas, um, is really quite amazing. And I don't, I don't think these collaborative spaces are going to go away now that they're here. Mm. I'm also seeing it on Twitter where groups of people are starting to reach out to each other to figure out what are the resources we need to do X or resources we need to do Y. It's very encouraging to see that. Absolutely. And I think there's becoming a greater partnership between, um, schools and the wider community. And I mean, Schools are already working so hard, and so it's like for them to. But at the same time, it's pretty amazing to see how engaged schools have been in supporting this this really huge need. Mm. Um, and I think that that link between the authentic and the real world in school um, is one that that can't or shouldn't go away, right? Mm. You know, Robin, I, I'm thinking back now to my time at Punahou, which was back in the 70s. Um, I did seventh grade through the twelfth grade, um, and I actually can't recall a time back then when I ever actually worked on a team or a team project, except for sports, which was you know I played football and I wrestled, um, but I don't recall that on the academic side. It was all very individual. 
But now, um, you know, as I really pay attention to what's happening at Punahou, it looks like kids are getting just epic opportunities to do that. Absolutely. Um, I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about um, a new program we just launched this year called Global Sustainability by Design. And it, it really kind of brings in all these things that we've been talking about. It's the idea that if, if, if we're going to solve the world's problems, and, and I think our kids want to, right? It's not just going to take sort of the environmentalists or um, the journalists. It's, it's going to take people from all different disciplines um, with a shared vision, but different skill sets um, that come together and, and can collaborate, right? And, and not just from different disciplines, but different parts of the world. Um, and so I, I definitely see um, that we are, as I think, in education moving towards the recognition about the importance of collaboration. And that, that also requires a lot of social and emotional skills, right? Um, so this program, Global Sustainability by Design, GSD for short, um, we have a, a, an entire thread of the course that is around social-emotional learning and collaboration um, because I think we all recognize that collaboration is important. Um, and then we would just say a lot of times kids collaborate. Um, and it's not easy, man. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Josh, but um, no. collaboration can be hard, right? It, it requires much. A tremendous amount of, of listening, of self-awareness, of social awareness, of sort of that ability to let go, that ability to step up. Um, and that's about knowing yourself and about knowing others. And so I, 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 tr I believe that it's an important thing for us to actually teach and practice explicitly like we might anything else and then give them an authentic context in which to practice it. Um, but I think we are recognizing more and more the importance of these these social emotional skills that will lend itself to it. Mm. You know, Robin, my wife is the publisher of Hawaii Business Magazine, and um, I have this super, I mean, obviously terrible negative circumstances, but I have this amazing opportunity to watch her run her team from a distance, um, everybody working um, across quite uh, you know, big distances from each other. And it's such a, a rich and complex process to publish a magazine, both physically and digitally online. Um, and yet, I'm, I'm to what you were just saying, it's just amazing to watch the collaboration that happens and how that collaboration that was developed face-to-face -face over years is now just absolutely in play as people are working from a distance. It's really amazing to watch that happen. Um, and I get I'm on the front lines of it because she's, you know, literally in the room next to me at home uh, and, you know, working on her computer and, and having all these Zoom calls with her staff and everything. It's it's very, very cool. Absolutely. I mean, it's it really is. And I think it is going to transform the way we work. Right. Because we're going to be wondering whether it's really necessary to be back in that physical space again. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I, I've heard some conversations pop up just recently about college and about whether or not, um, you know, the large campuses will even be the same once we get to the other side of COVID-19 because so many people are working at home. But of course, there's tremendous value to being near somebody physically. So it's, it's, it's all going to play out in some very interesting ways. 
Yeah, and I think I mean I I I still very much believe in that that physical space, but I also think there's the time and the place that you you don't need to be together. And so I'm I'm excited about the idea of some sort of hybrid learning model that might emerge from this, right. um, and recognition of what requires place and what what really doesn't. Yeah, we've I've been having conversations with people around blended learning, and that's often a difficult concept for people to grasp, um, including parents. Um, and I think coming out on the other side, we're going to have a much greater awareness of what blended learning is, uh, because mm-hmm. that's actually Absolutely. that's what's happening right now. Awesome. And then I think we'll also recognize, like, gosh, I wish I was in person for this, right? And and so it, it helps us differentiate the different parts of of learning um, about what the needs are. And another uh, conversation that I've been hearing a lot about is synchronous versus asynchronous, Robin. It's like, are you going to be doing this all at the same time? Are you going to be doing this separately? Um, And it's, I'm I'm excited that this is such a prominent part of the conversation, um, that people are even thinking about this uh, uh, concept of synchronous versus asynchronous learning. Absolutely. And and something we we do in global ed all the time, right, because of different time zones. Um, mm. And it's really hard for our first graders to be collaborating with their partners in India synchronously. It doesn't it doesn't work within the school day, um, and so it's all asynchronous. And it's just it's finding that balance and that value and recognizing that you can still have a lot of connection and um, practicing of skills in an asynchronous environment. Right. But sometimes synchronous is great too. I mean that that's also quite magical. Right. Awesome. Hey, everybody, stay with us. We're going to take a short break and come back with more questions for Punahou School's Robin Vieira. Stay with us. What could your school do with $25,000? Hawaii Public School teachers apply for the Education Innovation Grant from Farmers Insurance Hawaii and the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation to make your big idea a reality. The Education Innovation Grant fosters unique, innovative learning experiences benefiting teachers, students, and the greater community. The deadline to apply is May 30th. One Oahu winner and one neighbor island winner will be announced in October. To apply, go to FarmersHawaii.com slash Education Innovation. Toy and Amber from Entre Ed Talk. We are so excited to uplift this cool new podcast coming to you from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What school could be in Hawaii? As always, we're super excited to support innovation and education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of these incredible educators on our own podcast, Entre Ed Talk. If you're looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators from across the world, join us as we share their journey and insight. Be sure to check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Entre Ed Talk and like, subscribe, and drop us a review today. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii, a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Rapoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of EdTech. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page and scroll down to EdTech. We'll see you there. Hey everyone, 
We're back with Robin Vieira. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. So Robin, question number six. So back in 2020 at that same, uh, sorry, January 2020, at the same East Meets West conference, I listened to keynote speaker Mara Zapita, or Zapeta, who founded a fund in Oregon that accelerates women entrepreneurs. Um, and I listened to her speak about diversity in the workplace, about an economy that serves all Americans. And then yesterday I read about how you had an emotional, strong reaction back in college to Jonathan Kozel's book, Savage Inequalities, which brought you face to face with inequalities in education. So my question is, what is the role of our K-12 schools in building an equitable economy and a truly level playing field in education and all the other sectors that are out there in our culture? Oh, great question. Um, you know, I I feel like I had, I mean, I think our schools do a great job having our students want to do something and wanting to create meaning and, um, and, and for me to make a better world. But I think for me, it was a shock when I realized that we didn't live in an equitable world. And that, um, that was really hard realization. Um, and so I think it's really an interesting balance between having, um, well, I don't know if it's a balance, but it, it, I think it is, there is something about recognizing your, I, I mean, the work around identity, our around what is your community, um, what is your privilege. I think that's important work that um, all our students should be doing and recognizing that um, that this this isn't really an equitable world and not not I guess that's where I was trying to sort of safeguard a little bit, but just recognizing with that, I mean, it's, it can be depressing if you don't have the other part of the coin about like, so what does this mean, right? right, right. Um, and so that has to be very much scaffold. I mean, what that conversation looks like for a kindergartner is completely different than what it would look like for a 12th grader, right? I mean, mm -hmm. for for our, our young kids, um, I think it's really just, that idea of talking about what, what's fair and not fair, right? Um, it's about, I mean, building those social relationships within the classroom, but also thinking about, um, you know, I have this, our, we just finished a global project um, with our first graders in, with a school in Bangalore, India. And those students, it, well, one, it was their, they're speaking their, their fourth language um, and their English was great, but they had a really strong, strong accent um, and it was hard for us to for our students to always understand them and then when we told them that um, you know what it's hard for those students to understand your accent um, they were shocked they were like but I don't have an accent like how could it be hard to understand my accent mm -hmm. um, and I think those are some of the very beginning conversations about kind of who are you in this world and different perspectives and taking on different perspectives that support that question that you're asking about um, what is equitable because you have to be able to think in different perspectives if you're going to engage in that conversation. Mm. Um, and then with our, our 12th graders, it's, we have this great, um, it's called Capstone, um, but it's actually within all our classes that 
we we hope to be having those conversations about um, as you you enter the world, what is what is the privilege? What have you been given? I think a lot of um, our listeners probably have played that that trash can game, right? Where you have the trash can and then you have a crumpled piece of paper in your hand, um, and then you you throw your crumpled paper into the trash can. But some kids are close to the trash can, and some kids are way far from that trash can, and it just illustrates that um, that that image around. Um, equality versus equity and everyone getting what they need. Um, and I think that can lead itself to a lot of really interesting conversations within the classroom. So it's, I, I think the answer to your question is how do we prepare our students for a more sort of supporting a more equitable world? It's having those, those beginning conversations and learning experiences um, that can support that. Mm. You know, Robin, over the last four or five years in Hawaii, um, there has been an emerging conversation, uh, very productive, very respectful uh, conversation between public, private, and charter school um, educators and education leaders, something quite different than you might find in other states where, you know, charter school people come out of their foxholes and they're firing their weapons at the public schools or, or vice versa. We've got something very special happening here in Hawaii where the, the three sectors of education are talking to each other. And I'm really excited about that and, and trying to play a role in helping develop that conversation. But having said that, I still worry sometimes that our private schools are perceived to be the places where leaders are developed and our public schools and charter schools are the places where, you know, people who work in the economy are developed. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, <laughs> that brings me back very much to kind of Frary's work. Um, and th- that's really not okay. And that, that, I think that comes back to pedagogy um, and you, you brought up this idea before of, you know, kind of just doing worksheets and completing them and filling them in. Right. Um, and, and for some reason, maybe some schools have, have moved away from that model faster than others. Um, but, but that, that, it's that pedagogy that's going to be driving that readiness for, um, the economy and sort of the the, the leaders and the, the sort of workers. Um, and so I think you're talking about this this collaboration between public, private, and charter. I think this, this calls out the need for continued collaboration and um, a lot of shared work about, uh, I guess I'm going to reference your podcast, like what schools should be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they should be places where students are being asked to do new things and think in new ways and um, come back to the desired question, like how might we questions? Right. Um, they shouldn't They shouldn't be filling out a worksheet that has a single right answer and handing it back in. Right. Um, and those discussions about what might that look like in the classroom um, while still building really important skills um, because all of our students need to know how to read and write and they need that instruction for how to do it. Um, and, but how might they be applying that to really new and interesting ways is, is an important conversation that 
all of us need to be having together. Mm. One of my earliest guests uh, in this series uh, was Alex Teese, who founded. Oh, yes, I know him. Yeah, so he, so wow, amazing. It took him three years, but he founded a charter school called Dreamhouse Academy, yeah. um, which is specifically oriented towards um, identity and leadership. And I'm excited about things like that because it sort of does two things. One, it sort of starts to blur the lines between public, private, and charter in terms of where is leadership development coming from. And then the other thing is that it's it's so direct. It's like, here's our mission. We're working to develop leadership here in Hawaii. Um, come to us, and that's what we're going to work on. And, and I'm just super stoked about things like that. Absolutely. Um, and I think the approach they're taking is amazing. I mean, granted, I, I think there has to be a recognition here that we're working in a different system, private schools and charter schools and public schools, whereas, you know, a school like Pudahoe has, um, has these, these learning outcomes that we pursue, but we don't live within a, a standards-based world, right? right. Um, and we don't live within a, um, a testing model, right, where we have to be accountable for some sort of outside force. Right. Um, and, that, and that works for us, right? And so I think it's, it's finding out, it's again that idea of like, okay, what are we working towards and how might we apply it back to our, our different contexts? Um, and then how might we work to change our contexts? Um, because teachers, I mean, the, I, I, I work with teachers in, in, in public schools and I provide training sessions. Um, and it's, it can be hard figuring out what that, that balance is between meeting the needs of the standards, which, which I, and, and doing these things that we're talking about. And I think it absolutely can be done. It just, it takes a little bit of creativity and, mm -hmm. and hard work. So it turns out that's a perfect segue to question number seven. Um, so I wanna, I wanna talk about a concept that is gaining traction in education globally, uh, but in my estimation is not well understood, at least not yet. I'm referring to competency-based learning or CBL. Yeah. So um, Robin, what is your understanding of this educational practice? And could you share a few examples of how Punahou is exploring and engaging in this competency-based learning type of learning and assessment framework? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's something I'm really, really excited about. I think we've, and I think it does segue from your earlier question pretty well because it's this idea of backwards. I mean, we've always been talking about backwards design, right? right. But it's backward mm -hmm. designing from what really what really matters, right? Um, and so, what really matters are are these competencies. And so, how might we provide learning experiences that align to them, and not only just provide those learning experiences and provide this like letter grade that might not be aligned, but really some direct feedback on um, how students are approaching those competencies. So, for example, let's say, or in our parts of our, uh, our conversation, we're talking about how important um, collaboration is, right? right? And so, a lot of times that that lives within a grade. Um, and, and it still lives within our grade here in our grading system at Punahou, and it works. But um, but how might we explicitly tell students like this is what collaboration looks like? Here are the we call them descriptors. So within this this bucket of collaboration, here are the individual competencies and descriptors that actually explicitly tell you what collaboration is looks like and what we're looking for in collaboration. So it's really clear to 
to students what they're working towards, and then the feedback they receive is how well they're 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 approaching those outcomes. And what I love about competency-based learning is that it's not just okay, here you got this, and and we're done, and we'll average it at the end. It's like okay, this is where you're at, and it provides a very gross mindset toward learning, and, and this is where you, we want you, and we'll continue to provide you feedback, and then we're going to measure you on where you end up, right? It's, it's, we're not going to average that you are really bad at the beginning and really good at it at the end, and, and then you're sort of just medium. No, you're actually really good at it at the end, and we're going to reward that with a grade. Hmm. Um, and so what I love about competency learning, I guess just summarizing, is that this really explicit um, idea of measuring what matters and making that clear to students and giving feedback on on these different skills that we know matter, critical and creative thought, collaboration, empathy. One of ours is a global perspective. Um, and then allowing students to work towards them in a way that isn't punitive and that it's okay to start at the beginning and and be really successful in the end. And what does what does the professional development process look like for educators as a school is beginning to work with CBL um, as as a part of its school culture? Yeah, and so I mean, the way we're starting with it is creating these sort of um, hubs of sort of innovation, so different classes and teachers who really want to dig into it, you know, the sort of past courses can, while people who just kind of want to wait and see can as well. Um, and then, so the Global Sustainability by Design that I spoke about is a CBL pilot class, and, and kids know that when they opt into it, that they are learning under this different assessment model. Um and so within those that pilot, we've done a lot of professional development on it. Um, the Roar Institute offers a lot of really great resources, and all the department heads have gone and to this national conference to learn about what CDL looks like there. The Global Online Academy provides a lot of really great resources. Um, and so I think for us, the professional de- development model means that we can some people can jump in right away and then kind of i mean it it can be a messy process but it it, the kids i mean we're having amazing outcomes the Mm. kids are learning a lot the kids the feedback is amazing um the parents are happy and so we're learning along the way about how to the best systems to do it but we're also learning that it's been really great for kids Mm. and the growth mindset is part of and the then it thing. grows from there, right? right? And we can share those learnings um, and think about what other contexts can be applied to. You know, you remind me, you've seen the film Most Likely to Succeed, right? Yes. So you, you're reminding me of that story of Brian, uh, one of the two main stories in the, in the documentary. And Brian's story is a complicated one when you're looking at it from a CBL perspective. Uh, because in many ways, as a collaborator, he failed. Um, his team wasn't able to present at the public exhibition of learning. Um, there, I've heard stories from the producer, Ted Dentismith, about how hard it was to interview the parents of kids who were on his team because they're still mad at him uh, about the fact that, you know, he, he was the leader of the team and they failed to get there to that public exhibition. But on the other hand, look at him. He, was, he, he, he definitely had a growth mindset and he persevered his way all the way to finally finishing it much later in the summer. So it's, it's examples like that that um, are exciting to think about when you're in that CBL framework, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's important to note that like kids, kids are learning, right? And it's, 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 it's just really fun to see them learning in different ways and to see teachers learning um, and seeing that it, it is a positive thing. Okay, so again, perfect segue to question number eight. So Robin, back in August of 2019, one of my first episodes was with Melissa Spiegens, who's the principal at Waimea Canyon Middle School on the island of Kauai. Um, She's using the 17 United Nations Sustainability Goals as the basis for what she calls 20% time on her middle school campus, which is six, seven, and eight uh, grades meaning 20%, amazingly, of every school day is spent working on these goals in teams, which the kids and the faculty self-select to. So I might choose, you know, life underwater, and you might choose, you know, peace and social justice, and off we go for 20% of our day. We spend working on something um, that we come together around that. Um, So you helped build a course at Punahou for ninth graders called Goal 16, that also uses the UN's 17 sustainability goals. And the project is named, or its its online name is goal16.org. So please, please tell us everything about this awesome course. Um, yeah, okay, so just slight correction. The course is actually called, it's one of the GSC courses and it's our English social studies strand and it's called GSC Place, Perspective and Partnership. Got it. Um, and goal 16 is actually a student-driven project that emerged from the course. And it, mm. I mean, it's not like next year there's going to be another goal 16. It's, it's the direction uh, um, it. Okay. That, it, that it went. Um, and so I think the, the sort of the first – so again, um, Sam Vera and Kayla Clapp are the teachers of this course. And they we were – I mean, they developed this really great learning space for the kids to to pursue this project. Um, and they spent a lot of time, you know, in, in terms of the skill building and, and context building on the English side, they were reading a lot of books about personal identity and characters um, who to find their personal identity and how they express that. And then they were connecting it to um, they use the curriculum um, by facing history and ourselves, Holocaust and human behavior, I think it's called. Mm. Um, not positive. Um but then thinking about how our own personal identity sort of shapes our, how we act and how we um, behave in our world. And so these sort of two subject matters came together and they, they asked the kids really like knowing how that about your personal identity and how you create change and you um, affect the world around you. Like what does what does this mean for you? Um, and the kids came together and created a mission. Uh, they created sort of like a strategic plan. They worked in teams or sort of a team of internal affairs, external affairs, I think it was. Um, and they they really figured out which sort of directions that each of them would go would go in on this. And and it was all it all lived in this goal sixteen project. So they have a writing competition. They have um, 
that I think is, and they've had a lot of submissions too. They have um, t- a, a whole a whole pu- sort of publicity team that's making T-shirts and, and different um, tweeting out. And so I, I, it, it's just really amazing to see that the teachers and this is one of three different strands of global sustainability by design, and they're they're all doing this, but really making the space um, for kids to pursue topics that they're they're passionate about, while giving them sort of the skills and the context um, that support it. Well, you know, one of the privileges, Robin, of doing this podcast is that I get to do all this research on on people like you and 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 Sam and. And everybody else who's building these, you know, really remarkable types of learning modules, and and um, this one in particular really got my jets going. And I, I just I get these moments where I just want to be back in school again because I did not have an opportunity to do something like this when I was in school. So I feel like I'm sort of vicariously reliving my high school experience. Um, through things like that, but so, but I want to ask you about one one part of this because I spent quite a bit of time surfing, you know, the classroom resources page of this site of goal16.org, and, and mm. this is where the kids built learning modules for anyone to use. So, h- how did that part of the project come about, and how did the kids go about building learning modules that would be used by other people, anybody really, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you, I mean, the site is amazing. They, they that was all student created. Um, I'm not going to lie; I don't think the teachers know how to make a site that looks that amazing. Right. But that's that's Agreed. the beauty of it, right? Is that um, you provide you provide that space to, like, they they have all these different amazing digital talents, really. Um, so, what they did. Sorry, repeat the question one more time. So just talking about the learning modules that the kids made that can be mm-hmm. downloaded and used by anybody um, that are that are centered around Goal 16. Yeah, so that's one of the, the teams. Um, that was one of their, their projects. And really, again, their mission was around Goal 16 and peace and justice. And so they're thinking about they brainstorm. Well, well, how how can we pr- promote peace and justice, mm-hmm. right? And they realize that education is is definitely a way to go, and so they decided that they wanted to create these modules as and be leaders in and how they might promote that all over the world. Um, and so that's the direction that that team took, and the team leader for all of Goal, Goal 16 was able to blend that into the larger project. I think one of the things that was so exciting about reading those modules, Robin, was that the kids in the learning modules that could be used by anybody out in in Hawaii or anywhere in the world actually reflected the rich experiential nature of the course itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they weren't asking, you know, here's here's a worksheet that you can fill out, you know, around peace and justice or social justice. These were like really amazing modules, and clearly they were picking up on. The culture of of the course itself. Yeah, and I, I think it it comes back to that earlier question you asked about you know d- different uh, are schools creating leaders or schools creating right. workers. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that's a testament to when you when that's the culture you build in your classroom, you see that that is what kids end up doing when given complete choice. Uh, not complete choice, but they, when given a lot of space. And so 
um, I think I think that's a data point right there, right? That mm-hmm. um, this this type of learning environment and pedagogy is important and it works. And here in 2020, one of the things that I'm most excited about is that I'm seeing examples of this, just like Melissa's uh, 20% time project at, at Waimea Canyon Middle. I'm seeing this popping up all over public schools and charter schools here in Hawaii. And that's just, that's the kind of leveling the playing field that I'm excited about, that kids have equity to, of access to these kinds of really rich types of experiences. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's important when we talk about partnership, kids from um, all over the state from different schools participated in their their writing competition. And so I think it is a part of that. The kids are trying to create those partnerships um, for engaging in these conversations. Yeah, a natural thing for them to do. They're just reaching yeah. out to their peers across the state. That's awesome. Exactly. Cool. Okay, so so kind of along the same lines, question number nine. Um, so you sent me an article uh, you did not author, but which suggests um, your interest in virtual reality or VR. Mm. Um, so this blog post at uh, basecampschool.com starts with two what-if questions. So I'm just going to ask you the two what-if questions, and you can let her rip with both of them, okay? So okay. here's the first question. What if virtual reality could awaken a learner's deepest wonder, curiosity, and empathy? VR is so interesting because sure it allows us to go places that we would never be able to go otherwise, right? Um, we have students who are learning about um, the refugee crisis, and then all of a sudden they can be in Jordan in a Syrian refugee camp and hear the story firsthand from a 12-year-old girl. Um, and that's something that you would never experience otherwise, and, it, and it's it's different than a movie, right? It's because you have that sense of um, of, of presence that it, it changes the way your your brain absorbs it. Really, mm-hmm. um, it's it's not the same as a movie, and it there's an interesting research behind it. And the way you you remember it is that um, you remember what like maybe twenty percent of what you read, forty uh, percent what you see, but it's eighty percent of what you experience. Um, mm. And I think that lends itself to, well, I mean, much of this conversation is this experiential learning that we that, that really sticks, is sticky for kids, and it and supports deep learning. But VR does the same thing. You remember 80% of what you experience. Your brain records it very much like um, it would maybe a field trip, right? And granted, I still believe field trips are, are super important and, and more important. But when you don't have access, to that, um, that you could go somewhere virtually. Um, so, so what excites me about VR really is that we can engage with issues and engage with places in ways that we never would really be able to before. Um, I also think it has a really unique ability to help us think about, um, bias and take on different perspectives. There's a lot of research around diversity training about how when you, that, that sort of physical presence and maybe an, an avatar might help you understand different perspectives and recognize your own stereotypes and bias. Um, so your original question is, I guess, what if VR could, what was it, awaken? Awaken a learner's deepest wonder, curiosity, and empathy. A learner's deep, yeah. And so I think, I mean, maybe I'm sort of answering the question. Um, I think 
I view I view VR as another like you go to a learning commons, right? The the new the new thinking on libraries about places and hubs of, of learning where you reach out to books as tools, you reach out to the internet as a tool, you have librarians there um, that that can support you. And I see VR as a tool there as well mm. in that you can dig into on your learning journey as, as resources to help you pursue that topic that you're, that you're exploring. Right. right. Um, and I think it just, uh, in terms of sort of awakening a person is it just, it's so much more impactful than um, just reading about it. Right. And it really, like, I, I think back on some of the VR experiences that I've, I've gone through, maybe one on hunger and homelessness and, like you are on a bus and you are the homeless person and that that sense of fear that you have that I don't I don't know if many people think about how scary it must be not to have um, a house right mm. and that sense of vulnerability and I think I think VR can really awaken some of these different perspectives that you you might not otherwise um, understand. Mm. You know I've I've been involved in ed tech from the very beginning of my teaching career back in the in the 90s. And I've seen a lot of things, Robin, come and go. Um, and yet VR strikes me as something that could be around for a while because it seems to be grounded in something different than other ed tech uh, trends that have come and gone. It, it seems to be grounded in empathy in a way that I haven't seen before, that you really get to experience something. And then you just explain that as experience is something that you retain. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about what could happen with VR. And the other, the second question that the blog post poses, which I'll post to you is, what if virtual reality could also catalyze a learner's desire to contribute to the common good? So mm -hmm. what, what are your, what are your thoughts about that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the answer is yes and, right? Yeah. Um, I, one, one activity that we, we've done is, you know, it's, it's, back to the design thinking cycle that that vr as experience is the empathy phase along with other things that that catalyze um that learning cycle and so if you can support the empathy phase uh, more deeply it allows those those prototypes and those actions um to just be so much more thoughtful and really address um, the needs that one is seeking out to address are you are you thinking now about ways to incorporate VR into your into your Woe Center programs? Yeah, we we do. Um, and so, oh, uh, let's say uh, just before spring, we we break for spring break. Our fourth graders were learning about water. Um, that was their their unit of study, and so we began thinking about, oh, why is water so important? Why is it so important globally? Um, and the kids had a good sense of it, but then we did this really great VR experience where they're with, I think it was set in Ethiopia, and they see this girl's life change. She's talking about how she has to walk a really long distance, um, and she can't go to school because she has to get water, and then a well is dig, and how it changes her life. Um, and and that, there's an incredible, and then we have a discussion afterwards, and that's an incredible global experience kind of mm seeing different perspectives, empathizing with those perspectives. And then we had a discussion about like, what, what does that look like in terms of fairness? Um, and these are all those global education lessons that we hope to have. You know, if there are sixth graders are learning about Great Wall, 
why shouldn't we go there? Like, we should go there in VR and, and really understand how vast it is. Kids are always amazed that it, they know yeah. how big it is, but it really feels a lot bigger when you're actually there. Um, so, we're, yes, we're definitely using VR um, in global education. And then we also have a grant for the design tech side about creating VR. Um, and they're starting to design VR experiences, which is really exciting. And then hopefully one day, we you know, we're not there yet where we can actually interact in a VR space with people in different places um, when we're not actually connected by a wire. Um, but I, I think I think we're going to be there kind of relatively soon. And that's going to transform global education and, and really have a lot more equity of access. Mm. You're reminding me of a moment, Robin, back in, I don't know, it was like 95 or 96, I was teaching medieval studies in the academy at Punahou. Um, and I was trying to figure out a way to have the kids understand what's involved in a pilgrimage. Like, how do you, you can show video, you can have them read something, you know, but how do you, how do you actually get them to empathize with somebody who's a pilgrim going on a spiritual journey, like, you know, the journey to uh, Compostela de Santiago? So I, in the middle of a day, you know, at noon when it was a bajillion degrees, I got them up and made them put on their backpacks and the guys had to wear their backpacks on the front side to simulate being, you know, with child. And I took them on a hike up and around Rocky Hill for an hour. Um, and wow, did they complain bitterly the whole time. Like, why are we doing this? You know, and it's so hot and it's all steep and my backpack is heavy. And when we got back, we had an awesome conversation about faith. Like, would you really travel 3,000 miles by foot to go to a holy site? What would make you do that? And I feel like now I'm looking back on this and going, hmm, that was a little bit of me trying to do a VR thing, you know? I mean, it was just, it was too funny. And I think the lesson was learned. Yeah, I mean, we know that kids learn through experiential learning. And so any way we can provide that, whether it be a hike with a backpack or a trip in VR, I think yeah. we know it supports that learning. Right, right. And there's also probably going to be ways, uh, for example, like with, I remember when Second Life first showed up, that there are ways to work collaboratively w with people um, in teams using VR as well, right? Um, yeah, I, I think my understanding, I mean, there's, a, there's actually it's really exciting um adventure vr based here in hawaii you can do uh breakouts in virtual reality wow. and so you work on a team and you can actually see each other you can see each other's movements you can pass things to each other but you're all hooked up to the vibe um and that's really exciting right now you still have to be connected um mm. through wires wiring um my understanding is we're not quite there in terms of that that level of experience when right. you're not wired in together. Um, but but just the fact that you can collaborate in that VR experience. And I mean, a breakout is a perfect example of a challenge that requires collaboration and communication, yeah. right? Yeah, um, that it's, it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah, that's very cool. We'll get there quick. And not to mention that kids, I mean, it's so engaging, right? Uh, like they're, they're so excited by it. And that that supports learning as well. Yeah, when they come home and, you know, mom or dad asks, like, what did you do in school today? They're going to just go off after right. things like that, right? So that's awesome. Totally. So, Robin, we have arrived at question number 10. Um, <laughs> I know, amazing. It's gone by fast. <laughs> Let's note that none of 
these questions were, were given to us ahead of time. So this is yes. really, I mean, this is, it's a fun conversation. <laughs> Duly noted. Um, <laughs> so Robin, typically I end episodes by asking my guests to talk about what they think school could be, which is a riff off of the title of Ted Dindersmith's book, What School Could Be, and and based in you know the name of our podcast series. So I'll do that this time, but with a twist. Um, you recently applied to be in a social justice cohort, and one of the writing prompts in the application reads like this. Tell us a story that illustrates how your experiences working with diverse populations helped you grow as an educator. So I found your written response to be very moving, Robin. So please share with us the story about Mario and the dance video. Right. Oh, gosh, I wrote that a couple months ago. Um, but, I mean, I remember it was an experience. So I was in my first year of Teach for America in Los Angeles, um, fresh, fresh out of high school, out of college, sorry. Um, and I, I was having a rough time. Um, it, it was a great experience. I was, I was teaching these kids, but I remember, I think it was third period was always just really, really tough. Um, and that was our C track. And those are, I mean, kind of a shame. It's that the kids are tracked and C track was always the toughest track. Um, and third period was particularly difficult, um, because Mario, um, was really was really challenging right um and he took a lot of trips to vice principal's office and i was a beginning teacher really trying to figure out um how to support him right and so i i knew that mario was really interested in dance and he went to an after-school dance club every wednesday and then through the teach for america hub i had learned about some um production studio wanting to highlight uh, students dancing and create a, a dance video and so I, I asked Mario if he wanted to do it and it, it, he really didn't want to do anything I asked him to do just, just for the record mm-hmm. um, but this one he was like kind of played it cool he's like yeah yeah that sounds good um, and but you know what he, he showed up he got his parent permission form signed he got the rest of the guys on his team to show up as well and their permission form signed which was was really different than my experience before that with Mario um, and, and we went to the dance studio on that day and it was amazing it was amazing Josh like they they were in their zone they were so polite they were um they were listening to directions and then they were like they were amazing dancers it was really fun to see um and then they um we had a, we had a great day together and then from there moving forward um we had i had a better year with mario you know i think he he understood that i was there to support him that i that i cared for him that i wanted to see him be successful um and that I had a better understanding of who he was as an individual beyond that, that box of a classroom that I only knew him in. Um, and to me, it was a good lesson. I think that, that we all really know, and it was a good reminder to me because I'd read it in my, my teacher sort of learning guides, but that we meet kids where they're at, we build those relationships, um, and that helps, that helps learning thrive. Mm. I feel like it's such a perfect illustration of what school could be, the, the story of you and Mario and the team that was built and, and that breakout moment when you can actually 
be a part of something or you want to be a part of something because it, it's connected to who you are and, and where you come from. It's, that's, yeah. a, that's a really, really cool story. So Robin, um, it was a pleasure and privilege preparing for this interview today. Thank you for what you do to engage kids and, and bring relevance to their learning at Punahou School. You are amazing and it has been a real treat having you on this show. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And I mean, I appreciate all that you're doing to have these conversations and um, really just think about education and, and, and what it can be and what it should be. Thank you, Robin. And please, you and your family stay safe in this particular moment. You too. Thank you. Welcome back to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We are so excited to share all of the new educators for this month. So coming up next week is Brian Dote, mobile application designer and developer and the former Chief Innovation Officer at Mid-Pacific Institute. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. The first season of our podcast ends shortly. Stay tuned for special on-the-road episodes that will air from time to time from May through August. And stay tuned for information about season two, coming in the fall of 2020. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant is Ryan Ozawa. Our audio engineer for this episode is Daniel Gillard. The editor for this episode is Mae Kanata. Our post-production student manager under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at hawkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. Now, off to your next epic adventure. Class dismissed.